and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. Before we get to today's guest, I just want to tell you how you might be able to help us out at the podcast. First, thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Thanks for all the support that you've already given us. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. And one of the ways that a lot of our listeners have helped in the past is they go over to patreon.com backslash intentional performers and they throw us a couple dollars a month. It could be $2 a month, $10 a month, and they help make this podcast go. So thanks to all those people that have gone over to patreon.com backslash intentional performers. We truly appreciate it. Also, of course, we live in a social world and it really does help when you share these conversations. So please go over to Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, wherever it is you're social, like the podcast, go over to iTunes, write us a review. It really helps us expand our reach and make a bigger impact. And we're already seeing the benefits from all of you sharing on social media. So keep up the great work. Thank you. Now to today's guest. Scott Eblen is somebody that I got connected to through Georgetown University. I just finished an executive coaching program there at their Institute for Transformational Leadership, and Scott graduated from there years ago, and he was on a panel discussion webinar that my cohort was able to listen to, and he was just talking about the business of executive coaching, leadership coaching, and he shared a lot of knowledge, a lot of wisdom, and I just found him to be really bright really wise and really refreshing with how he thought about his practice. So I asked Scott, hey, can I get 30 minutes of your time and and can we chat? And we chatted a little bit. We hit it off. And then I had one more ask and I said, hey, would you like to come on the podcast? And he said, yes. So Scott Eblin is the president of the Eblin Group, a leadership development firm committed to helping clients lead at their best and live at their best. And you're going to find out today that Scott really believes that in order for leaders to lead, they have to be at their best. So he's going to talk a lot about how leaders can go about doing that and how he goes about doing that for himself. As a leadership expert, global speaker, and executive coach, Scott works with some of the best-known companies and organizations in the world. He's an amazing speaker. Uh, Go online. You can check him out. He also is an amazing writer, and he'll talk about his two books, The Next Level, which is actually coming out with a third edition and has been wildly popular. I'm on a listserv at Georgetown and people are always asking for book recommendations and Scott's book, The Next Level, often comes up. And he also wrote a book called Overworked and Overwhelmed and he talks about the power of mindfulness in that book. So Scott is definitely an intentional performer. He's going to talk about how he sets his mind to write, how he sets his mind to speak, and how he helps his clients be at their best so they can lead and be at their best. Scott's also going to talk about his journey and how he ended up in coaching and also his work in both politics and in the corporate world. So without further ado, I'm excited to present to you Scott Eblen. Scott, thank you so much for joining me on the Intentional Performers Podcast. Really excited to chat with you. Uh, I was fortunate to hear you speak for the first time over a webinar. Uh, I just finished up a program at Georgetown, which you're an alumni of, and you were talking uh, on a webinar with our, us students 
uh, and yeah. sharing your advice and your expertise and your knowledge and your wisdom. And I was just really intrigued and interested. So I followed up with you and we had a further conversation about uh, the business side of coaching and what works, what doesn't work. Um, and I found you to be really refreshing, really helpful. Um, and after our conversation, uh, I figured uh, what better way to share your impact on the world than sharing you with the community that listens to this podcast. So grateful to have you on. And where I'd love to start is to just find out how you even got into coaching and what that journey was like. Uh, and, l and let's just go from there. Okay, Brian, thanks. Um, and thanks for everything you just said. I really, that's really nice. Um, so I got into coaching 18 years ago, as we speak in 2018, it was the end of 2000, the year 2000. And I'd been a, I always say a corporate guy uh, for um, about 15 years, mainly corporate during the 15 years out of graduate school and uh, financial services and the energy industry. And um, towards the end of my time as an executive in this uh, energy company, which was, was, you know, was a pretty large company, it was about a Fortune 250. And uh, I was part of a team that was brought in out of to help the company emerge from bankruptcy. So it was a lot of turnover at the top ranks of the company. And, you know, it was a turnaround situation in many ways. And um, it was a really hard job. I mean, it was a super hard job for me. I was the head of HR and um, I was in way over my head. I mean, I just like <laughs> didn't know what I didn't know, you know, about how to do that job. Uh, I was really fortunate. My boss was patient with me, but she was also a good coach. And the other thing we had, Coaches, I mean, this was like, you know, in the mid 1990s and coaching then wasn't nearly what it is today. You know, like it was really just executive coaching, especially it was really just emerging as a thing, you know, in the 19 in the mid 90s. And so Kathy uh, Abbott, who was our CEO, she wanted one of the first things she asked me to do when she hired me as the head of HR was to find a firm that could provide executive coaches to the senior leadership team there. And I was part of the senior leadership team. And so um, I had a coach, you know, back in the 90s and a couple of them, actually. And I got to know all of the coaches that were working with our senior team because I was the head of HR. And after about three years in that job, we'd kind of set out, we'd sort of done everything as a leadership team that we'd set out to do. We had, you know, pretty specific metrics that we were going for on customer satisfaction, on investor return, on employee engagement. And, you know, we kind of did all that, you know, and, and I was starting to question, like, do I want to stick around for the repeat on this? I mean, are we like, what else are we going to do? And then I also felt like our corporate parent was probably going to get bought uh, that year because they just had made some decisions that really weren't maybe the best. <laughs> and um, sure enough, we were un under a hostile bid in March of that year, which became a friendly bid in May. And I spent that whole summer doing integration work with the acquiring company and uh, their consultant, who, which became Accenture. And um I knew that I, I mean, I thought at the beginning of the year I wanted to leave and that I was probably going to go coach based on, you know, the observations I'd had around coaching and how much difference it had made for me and my colleagues. Uh, and I knew for sure after spending the summer uh, doing integration work that I was going to leave. And so I just figured out how to leave, honestly, and started that business at the end of uh, this business at the end of 2000. Before we transition to your next step, I'm curious why HR, like what even got yeah. you into HR? and it's interesting for me. I remember one person saying to me when I was in my 20s, like, Brian, have you ever thought about HR? And I, it had never occurred to me to even explore that <laughs> path. Um, yeah. And no one had even brought that up to me in college or, or yeah. any time. So where did that even come from for you? Yeah, I, I think there are very few people who grow up wanting to be in HR. I mean, it's not like a childhood dream for many people. Um, and it wasn't for me at all. And it wasn't for me, really, honestly, until I... Um, had been in corporate land for a while. Um, what I, there were a couple of things that were, have, were true for me in my, in my career. One was that I was always interested in strategy and like, you know, and, or, and what I would now call organizational development. I didn't even know that was a thing then, but like, how do you get alignment between 
the people in the organization and the goals of the, the, the business goals of the organization. How do you organize people and lead people and, and motivate people in a way to achieve bigger goals, right? So I was always really interested in that, uh, probably even as a kid. Um, the other thing that was true for me in my career um, for a long time, and, and actually this sort of set me up for coaching in many ways, I, I for whatever reason, I always ended up reporting directly to the top person in the organization at a very young age. I mean, like um, my first job out of graduate school, very first job was a, a year on Wall Street, which I didn't like. But the next job after that was, um, I was I'm from West Virginia and I went back to West Virginia and worked for the governor of West Virginia for a couple of years. A guy named Gaston Caperton, who was a reformer, kind of in the Mark Warner model, Senator Warner from Virginia. You know, he, he was independently wealthy. He was into politics for the first time in that job. And and really, he was a great governor. And so I traveled all over the state with him, you know, and he had a, a platform that he ran on called the Partnership for Progress, which was an economic development program for West Virginia, which is always the big issue in West Virginia's jobs. And so I just got to see him up close and was, you know, in my 20s, an advisor to him. And uh, and then that led to going into banking with a, the biggest bank in West Virginia at the time. And uh, their guy who ended up being their CEO of the holding company when he was president of their flagship bank, I, he knew me from my work with the governor and hired me away and he said, you know, I'm going to do this, some cultural transformation when I get to be CEO of the holding company. I want you to help me with that. And so that happened. And that actually led to HR. Uh, I was always working with him on strategy. Uh, and we did a lot of acquisitions. I did a lot of acquisition work back then with him and um, a lot of board work and a lot of just trans a lot of stuff around total quality when that was a big thing. And um Eventually, I mean, he and I kind of concluded together that HR was a really good place to run a lot of that stuff from because you, HR controls all the systems that encourage people to behave in different ways, you know, whether it's performance management or compensation or whatever, you know, so that's how I ended up in HR. And so you're growing up in West Virginia, uh, which if you had given me, you know, 10, 15 tries, I probably wouldn't have gotten West Virginia. So, so <laughs> yeah. what was it like growing up in West Virginia? And I'm just curious, it sounds like you've always been sort of st strategic minded uh, and interested yeah. in, uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily say problem solving, but in finding solutions and uh, creating strategies and systems is the word that you used earlier. Uh, mm -hmm. Was there anything in your childhood that brought that out of you and, and led, led yeah. you down that path? That's a great question. Um, yeah, I, 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 my dad was a dentist, and uh, and one of the advantages of being the child of a dentist is you have a lot of magazines in your house <laughs> because, or at least that used to be an advantage of of uh, being a child of a dentist when people still read magazines, uh, because his waiting room, you know, they had like ten or twenty subscriptions for magazines for his waiting room, right? And so all those would end up in our house. And I can remember being, I, this is like so geeky, but I can remember being seven or eight years old and reading Time Magazine cover to cover as an eight-year-old. And I just, I was always fascinated by the news and what was going on in the in the big bad world out there. And I don't know why, but I just was always interested in politics. Um, didn't really have a sense of business so much. I mean, I recognize now that my mom and dad ran the practice together. I recognize now that they were small business people but he really led with being a healthcare professional. That was his identity, right? And and so I grew up around a business, but I didn't realize at the time that I was growing up around a business, which, you know, in the end was helpful because uh, I, my wife and I run a small business. And what are some of the values that mom or dad passed down to you? Huh. Uh, honesty. That's like the first thing right out of the gate. Uh, we got in lots of trouble if we lied. <laughs> when we were kids. And so honesty was really big. I think the other big impact and uh, big influence in my life, and I've actually talked about this to a few people lately, is it was scouting. Uh, my grandfather, my dad's dad, was a scoutmaster for years and was a really great scoutmaster. And I just totally admired him and idolized him and couldn't wait till I was old enough to be in Boy Scouts myself, you know. 
And so I joined it early on. And one of the things you learn in scouts, at least you did back in my day, and I guess you still do, there's a lot of emphasis on the practice of leadership and scouting. And really that's what scouting, at least for many, many years, was really designed to do was teach boys at that point. Now it's co-ed, but teach boys how to be leaders, you know? And and I, I actually got a... I save a lot of stuff. My mom saved a lot of stuff for me that I still have. And one of the things that I have is this loose leaf binder called Troop Leadership Development. It was this pilot program where I was on the pilot staff for that in my council. And I, I looked through it, just moving stuff around in our house six or seven years ago. And I was thumbing through it. And I hadn't looked at it in 20 or 30 years. Oh, my God, like everything that I know about organizing people in corporate land is in this loose leaf binder that I had in scouts. I mean, just nominal group technique. I mean, if, if there are facilitation geeks listening, I mean, you know, that's a classic facilitation skill that I originally learned in scouts and I'd totally forgotten that I'd learned that in scouts. Right. And so just, I don't know how to work with people, um, honesty, uh, doing what you say you're going to do. I mean, those were some of the things that I was taught and I was expected to be as a kid. So the scouts helped form your leadership mind. Uh, what were you like in, in high school socially? Were you a leader there or, um, you know, were you, what, what was life like for you there? Yeah, I probably was. I mean, I, 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 um, I was not a good athlete as a kid and I'm, I'm not a good athlete now, but I'm okay with that at this point in my life, right? I found other outlets, but the uh, the outlet that I had, I had sorry for laughing in your ear so hard. The the outlet that I had as a kid, you know, if sports wasn't going to do it for me, then I kind of gravitated towards anything that was leadership oriented, honestly. So, scouts was a big element of that. Um, uh, student government, I was class president at one point and student body treasurer at another point and key club, which used to be a big thing and at least in well, a lot of places, but it, much bigger than it is today. It was a service organization and I was governor of the West Virginia district of key club. Um, I was an Eagle scout. I mean, you know, I just like whatever there was to do. I, in that kind of space where, you know, anything that didn't involve a ball and a stick, I, I went and did it. And, you kind of always aspired to do it at the highest level, you know. And dad was a dentist, so he's certainly valued education. You don't get to become a dentist just by yeah, they don't you just know, let ra- you do raising that. your hand. <laughs> <laughs> they don't, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> some would say some people in the coaching world just raise their hand and become a coach. Yeah, probably. Um, uh, but certainly for for dentists, they value education. You valued education enough to get a graduate degree from the most prestigious university. Um, in the country. Um, wh- how did you think about education um, throughout your childhood? how did you think about education as you got into college? Um, just riff on that for me a little bit. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest. Uh, I always viewed um, in high school, it was much more about the extracurriculars for me than it was about the classes. I didn't study very hard in high school. I studied enough to make a, a B plus average, you know, without really working too hard. Um, so I wouldn't say I was a good student. Um, I went to Davidson College for undergraduate, uh, which um, is a really good school. It's a small school, but a good school. And um, I quickly realized uh, how much of a price I was going to pay my first term at Davidson from not working harder in high school. And, you know, I was in a big, huge humanities course where, you know, we're reading, I'm reading Plato, Plato or Aristotle or whatever for the first time in my life. And the kids who had, you know, worked a little harder in high school or had a different curriculum were reading Plato or Aristotle for the third or fourth time in their freshman year at Davidson. And, you know, they kind of knew the drill and I didn't. And uh, my first two years there were super hard and a real wake up call for me about how much harder I was going to have to work, you know, to really to really learn anything and and. To, to succeed really in that environment. So that was, I, I learned how to write at Davidson. I learned how to think at Davidson, uh, think critically. And um, so that was probably the biggest form, formative experience for me. The Kennedy School, again, I went back to viewing it as um, I'm going to get the most out of this two years because I recognized that that was, you know, kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity. 
And there's a ton of stuff that goes on around the Kennedy School that's just fascinating. And so I got involved in a bunch of stuff. You know, I, I did well in classes there, but I like the Kennedy School historically runs a program every two years for newly elected members of Congress. It's a, like a, a week long orientation program for them where they bring in the greatest thinkers on every topic and brief the new members on that. They do the same thing for new used to do. I don't know if they still do. Same thing for new mayors of big cities. And somehow I finagled my way in to be the curriculum coordinator for both of those programs, which basically meant I put the loose leaf binders together. Uh, but I got to sit in the room. You know, I got to sit in the room with the, that fresh that freshman class of Congress had John John L. Lewis or not John L. But John Lewis, you know, the civil rights icon from Georgia. Um, it had Fred Gandy, who was gopher on the love boat. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, there were a number of uh, Louis Slaughter, who just passed away, was in Congress for years, was in that group. And I uh, just, to, you know, that was an amazing opportunity. So I just kind of like, I, I guess I view education as paying attention to what's going on around you and, and, and going deeper where you're either motivated or it makes sense to go deeper. Well, it's interesting because the story that really stuck with me is eight-year-old you uh, sitting in the waiting room or getting the magazines home uh, yeah. that, that dad would bring back that would be expired and you're flipping through Time Magazine and going through the whole thing. So you obviously had curiosity in order to learn and, and read and grow. And one of the things that I think about as a parent is how do you unlock curiosity in kids because there's so much good science around the power of curiosity uh, when oftentimes in school kids are bored. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, there's been a lot written about our school system and how it's set up and, you know, started with industrial age. And, um, you know, I know for me, there were definitely, uh, just pure boredom in, in school. And I did well enough, um, to go to a, a good college. And, mm -hmm. um, so I, I wonder as a parent, and I would love to get your thoughts on that is, you know, are there ways to stoke curiosity? Are there ways to spark it? Um, what do you do? Do you just bring the magazines home and just put them out? <laughs> um, and I know for me, like my parents, they, uh, I'm one of three boys and you know, they had to treat all of us very differently because they knew if they told me to go left, I was going to go right. And, um, but I was curious to get your thoughts on curiosity around education and learning. I think, you know, from the parent standpoint, so, um, my wife and I are parents of two young men at this point, they're 29 and 25 respectively. And, uh, my, my my parents did this for me and my brother, and we tried to do it as much as we could for our kids. If they're interested in something, support that interest. You know, so if they're interested in dinosaurs, get them everything you can on dinosaurs. If they're interested in jet fighters, which our oldest son was like usually, I mean, he was a total expert on jet fighters for three or four years then you support that, right? And you take them to air shows and watch, you know, watch the Thunderbirds or the Blue Angels and go climb around the planes that are parked there and that kind of stuff. You know, my wife had a deal with them when we lived in Charleston, West Virginia. We, the airport in Charleston is Jaeger Airport, which, you know, the, the joke is you always have to be careful about flying into an airport that's named after a test pilot and Chuck Jaeger. And so the way Charleston is set up, it's a mountainous city, and the airport is on the top of a mountain that's been cut off so it's flat. And then we were on the next mountain over on a street called Beacon Hill. And it was Beacon Hill because at the top of our street was the last navigation beacon for one of the runways at Jaeger. And there was a C-130 squadron there, and there were all kinds of um, – jets that would fighter jets that would land their training jets and stuff and really cool planes with Harrier jets and all kinds of stuff that would land at Jaeger. And our kids were in a uh, Catholic school in Charleston. And the, the deal Diane had with the boys was anytime a cool plane landed at Jaeger, because we could see every plane that landed there because we were on the next ridge over, she was going to rush over to school and pull them out in the middle of the day and take them to this pre 9-11, take them to Jaeger and you could just walk right up to the private aviation terminal where they're parking the jets and go talk to the pilots. So I'll, I'll show you. People that are listening. Whoops. Sorry. You can edit that microphone dropping out. But, uh, <laughs> we'll leave it in. I'll show you a very cool picture. So, and as you're, as you're getting that, I'll, I'll just tell you. So it does get better than two and a half year olds just wanting to watch Paw Patrol all yeah. the time. So it can yeah. get to be fighter pilots and they yeah. can have other interests. Cool. Yeah. So 
the picture I'm showing Brian right now is a picture of my then, I don't know, four-year-old kid and my eight-year-old kid with uh, two pilots that are flying like a T-38, I think it is, jet that landed at Jaeger. And the four-year-old is being held up by one pilot and he's got the flight helmet on, the four-year-old does. And it's just like one of my favorite things. That's what we used to do, you know, and it's because they were interested in jets. And so, yeah, you know, just encourage their curiosity. It's cool. And I think I've, I've had clients in the past who, when I ask them for parenting advice, they say, let the, let the kid show you, you know, follow, yeah. follow the, follow the kid. They'll, they'll show you what they're interested in. And then, yeah, encourage them to explore it fully. Um, you know, it's interesting that Blue Angels are one of the groups that I study all the time because they're so cohesive yeah, as a yeah. group. Yeah. They use visualization. They use breathing techniques. Um, they use feedback loops like crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those of you that are listening, the Blue Angels, from a mindset standpoint, do it as as well as anyone. And I often show videos of them uh, the videos are, they're literally using VHSs, the video that I have. Um, so they're, they're outdated, but it's, it's really amazing work. Um, and then I think Jaeger was featured in the right stuff, right? <laughs> like he's one of the, yeah. the pilots you in know, the right in, stuff. In the book, the right stuff, Tom Wolf, who is, you know, the great Tom Wolf, who passed away last year. It, he starts that book out by saying, he, he talks about, you ever notice when you're flying on a, on a plane, and the pilot comes on and says, ladies and gentlemen, we got a little problem up here in the cockpit. We're looking out. So the, the little red light says that our landing gear is not going to lock when we land. And we're not so sure about that, but we're going to take care of it. Take a look at it. We'll get back to you after we know what's going on. And he <laughs> said, they all sound the same way. It doesn't matter where they're from. And the reason they all sound the same way is because they are imitating Chuck Yeager, who grew up in Hamlin, West Virginia. And that right stuff, that cool under pressure you know, and then, of course, the movie starts out with Chuck Yeager crashing a jet, you know, and Sam Shepard played Chuck Yeager and he's walking out of the fire with his, you know, with his backpack over his shoulder coming out of the jet. You know, it's just, yeah, everybody wanted to be Chuck Yeager. <laughs> awesome. So I'm going to transition back to you mm-hmm. uh, unless you've got a great uh, fighter, fighter pilot story yourself. Um, uh, but- I, I'll tell you the coolest thing. All right, go. One of the coolest things I've ever done. I've not. Like that's one of my lifetime goals is to ride in the backseat of a fighter jet. And somehow I'm going to figure out how to get that done. But what I did get to do was an arrested landing and a catapult launch from the deck of an aircraft carrier. That's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. I did a lot of work with the Navy and the Navy has this program called distinguished visitors where they, they will fly 10 or 12 people out in a little baby C-130 called a C-2 Greyhound. And you, strapped in and you fly like in my case we flew from uh, norfolk naval air station i guess um probably 100 miles off the coast of the harry s truman and you land on deck you know in the c2 greyhound and you know the tail drops down you you know they're they're taking you they're escorting you across the flight deck and into the ship and, and then we took off the next day on one of those things it was awesome how scary is that when you're coming in i've always wondered like is it like, what, what is it? Are you like, are we going to actually land this thing? Well, so, um, like, you know, it's funny because you don't really get a visual because we're, we're sitting in the back of the plane. We're not up in the cockpit, obviously, because the back of the plane has just got, it's kind of like a really uh, uncomfortable commercial airliner. I mean, you know, you've got two by two rows of seats facing the back of the plane, right? And you're strapped in. And so you can't see anything. Uh, and then all of a sudden you're just, Boom, you're just a dead stop, right? Because you, you know, the, the hook has hit the arresting wire in the deck and you go from flying at 120 miles an hour or whatever you're flying to zero like that, right? So that's, it's not, I guess the thing I've always thought about that is when I'm in, because, you know, occasionally you get situ- opportunities to be in those kinds of situations and those people are expert. I mean, you know, that's their job is to land a plane on an aircraft carrier. And so I figure like, they do this every day. It's not going to be that dangerous. I mean, it is It is dangerous, right? But it's just like, yeah, I, I'm going to trust the experts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, all right. I want to spend the rest of our time talking about coaching okay. and your experience coaching. So you transition out of the corporate world uh, and then – I know you go to, you go to the Georgetown program. Um, and then is it, you know, Hey, 
I'm here. Uh, hang my shingle. What's it like transitioning from this corporate world where uh, you have security, you have a job to do? Yeah. It sounds like it was very fast paced. There was a lot going on. Um, you know, certainly um, not a lack of work uh, to starting off and just saying, hey, here I am. And, and from the beginning, did you and your I, I, I assume you're married, yeah. uh, you know, did you and your wife? have that vision like your dad and your mom did to work together. Just paint that picture for us in 2000 of what yeah. that was like for you to take that big, in my mind, a big leap of faith. Yeah, it probably was a leap of faith that people used to say, uh, or used to ask me, you know, when I was leaving Columbia, the, the company that I worked for, I was the only member of the senior leadership team that left after the acquisition. Now, eventually they pretty much all left after the acquisition, but I, it was one of the situations where I could have stayed if I'd wanted to, but I made sure that I didn't. And so in a deal like that, just to be frank about it, you usually get a severance package and I got a severance package, which helped a lot. Right. You know, because I didn't have to immediately worry about, you know, how are we going to pay the mortgage this month? I mean, I, I had, you know, about a year covered, you know, as a result of that. So that was good. Yeah. Cause yeah. I'm doing the math. Your kids are what, like 11 uh, and, you know, yeah. Eight. Seven, yeah, I guess so. Like yeah, something like so. That. You're you're like in the you know prime of you know I gotta I gotta take care of my family. Yeah, my right? parents. Like, my parents were very worried when when we did that. They were extremely worried um, because you say to your mom and dad, "Well, I'm gonna be a coach." Like, what are you gonna do? And I was like, well, they, they, they was like, they didn't really understand it. Um, so I think I said this to you guys on the Georgetown webinar a few months ago. I, and I think this is a my you know everybody's mileage varies, but I think the general point applies to pretty much everybody. Um, I announced in October that I was leaving in December to go coach, and so I was very open. You know, at Georgetown they would call that making a making a declaration, right? I made the declaration that I'm going to be a coach, and so you know one of our coaches uh, from PDI at the time they've since been bought by Corn Ferry, but he was leaving PDI. Uh, to go to Capital One and be in HR at Capital One. And he came by, a guy named Mike McDermott, and Mike came by one day to the office to tell me he was leaving PDI. And, oh, good, what are you going to do? I'm going to Capital One. Yeah, okay, cool. Nobody really knew who Capital One was back then. They were just emerging, really, into what they are today. And and he said, so I hear you're leaving. What are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to go coach. He said, where are you going to coach? I said, I don't know, but I'm going to go coach. And he said, well, one of the things I'm going to be running at Capital One is their executive coaching program. Do you want to coach there? I said, yeah, it'd be awesome. So he connected me with the woman that was going to be on his team that was managing the coaches there. And Capital One was an early adopter of coaching, and they've always had a really robust coaching program there. And so I had my first – I left Columbia December 1st. I had my first client at Capital One December the 15th. And then six months later, probably had 15 or so clients at Capital One. And so that was really, really fortunate, and I completely recognize the good luck in that. However, it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been forthright about this is what I'm going to do. And you just got to start talking about it, you know. So that that helped a lot. You had a more, more. There's more to your question than that. But. No, no, no. I think uh, I, I want to know sort of what it was like for you. Was it anxiety yeah. producing? Yeah, completely anxiety inducing because. Um, yeah, you're like you said, you go from having your calendar back to back every day and, you know, being involved in big decisions and, you know, it's like, you know, it's a pretty much of a rush to be in a job like that. And to go from that to nobody's calling you, nobody knows really who you are, what you're doing. And I'm working from home and there would be days when I would maybe have one phone call on my calendar or maybe none, you know, and I would like literally in my head hear a clock ticking there was not a clock in the room but i would hear a clock ticking and uh, and i was like i was like psychotic almost and it was like uh, that was the sound of my severance package running down <laughs> you know and and is this going to work in time you know is this going to turn out okay in time that we can cover it you know and so that was you mentioned georgetown i i, I started essentially in January 2001. I didn't go to Georgetown until spring of 2003. So because, again, at that point, it wasn't really clear what you had to do to be 
qualified as a coach. And I'd been around it enough that I felt like, you know, I can do this. And I just was sort of self-taught through conferences and books and conversations. And then I went to Georgetown and realized pretty quickly that there was a lot that I didn't know. And it was super, super helpful to know that and learn it. From from the time you started to today, what's the biggest change you've seen in the executives that you work with? Hmm. Uh, time. Uh, more demand on it and less of it. You know, the feeling that, right? I mean, the, the second book that I wrote was called Overworked and Overwhelmed. Uh, that's the main title. And I, I see that year over year, starting 10 or so years ago, I, I see that trend going up year over year, you know, that, and at some point you reach a saturation point where it can't really, con- it can't continue to go up and up because it's almost so maxed out already. Um, but I, 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 I see less, I mean, it used to be in the early days, my coaching uh, meetings with clients were 90 minutes in person. That was the typical coaching conversation, right? I can't, other than if I'm delivering feedback to a client, there are very few, and that usually takes a couple of hours, you know, if you're going to deliver a comprehensive feedback session, I cannot imagine a client sitting still for 90 minutes very often, but that was Mm -hmm. the norm, you know, 18 years ago, and it's not today. So I think you've really got to be, you got to meet people where they are, you know, and so, yeah, it'd be great to be able to talk for 90 minutes, just kind of let it unspool in a natural way. But you've got to be much more respectful of people's time and and what they need, I think. Than... You you said something interesting, though. So time, which, which is fascinating to me, because time is the one equalizer that we have throughout the world. Everybody's got the same amount of time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I've always been interested in time. But then the other thing you're, you really hinted at was focus. And you know, are people able to sit and really, you know, unwind or unpack or unspool, um, you know, something without, you know, losing their mind. Uh, I know in the over overworked and overwhelmed, you talk about mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Uh, how does mindfulness work with time and and focus and and how do you think about that? Yeah. So I'll offer my simple definition of mindfulness, which would not, you know, pass the John Kabat-Zinn smell test, but I, I'm always trying to simplify things so to make it more and more accessible for people who wouldn't be inclined to read a whole book on mindfulness. Okay, so like what's the essence of this? And the way I frame it is it comes down to two things. It's uh, awareness, uh, awareness in two domains, extrinsically and intrinsically, what's going on around me in my environment and awareness of my reaction or response to what's going on around me physically, mentally, emotionally, what's my response. Um, and then the other big aspect of it, in addition to awareness is intention. So once I'm aware, I can be intentional about what I'm going to do or not going to do next. And so that's really what I'm trying to help my clients tune into a little bit. Um, the big theme for me that's emerged over the last three years or so is to lead at your best. You have to live at your best. And, and so I've, I've been really focused on leadership behaviors for the 15 of the last 18 years. I mean, you know, stuff related to my first book, The Next Level, uh, you know, what are the leadership behaviors you need to pick up and let go of to succeed in next level roles or next level situations? Great. However, if you're not managing yourself effectively, if you're not literally living at something that looks like your best state, then logically you're not going to be as effective as you can be as a leader. So I'm really trying, I'm really much more trying to address the whole person in a much more intentional way than I used to. I want to go back to the mindfulness piece. So the one part that I don't know specifically Kabat-Zinn's, but the one that I've always heard is around awareness without judgment, right? Yeah, right. Uh, aware- he, he brings that in a lot. So how do you think about judgment as you think about a mindfulness and when you work with mindfulness and try to help your clients become more mindful, uh, where does judgment play a role and how do you think about that? Yeah. So here's how I think about that. One of the most powerful questions I've ever been asked was from a coach I worked with at Columbia named Deborah Dickerson. And uh, Deborah one day um, asked me, I can't remember even why she asked. I guess I was just like criticizing myself, you know, for uh, endlessly for the, you know, which I did a lot back then. 
And she just, in a pause in my self-criticism, she just asked us, what would it take for you to stop judging yourself? Hmm. And that just like brought me up short to the point where I just like teared up. You know, it was like, it was like, wow, I'm, I do. I spend a lot of time judging myself. And it wasn't like I was magically cured by hearing her question, but it just brought it to my attention. And I see a lot of that, you know, I have a lot of needless, I mean, there's some, you know, self-assessment and self-evaluation, I think, can be quite useful. You learn from that, right? But endless loops of repetitive judgment of yourself, not really very helpful. And, and I close to the first line in the first chapter and the next level is insecure people make lousy leaders. And I think you can see that play out on the public stage with, you know, you don't have to look very far to see that playing out on the public stage these days, that insecure people make lousy leaders. And the root of insecurity is like, am I good enough? Am I, or I'm not good enough. And it's just like, the first pick up and let go and the next level is pick up confidence in your presence and let go of doubt and how you contribute. And it's not overconfidence. It's just like a grounded sense of confidence that, like, yeah, you know, okay, I've got some life experience. I can do this. It's a new thing, but I, you know, I haven't run off the rails so far. So what would it take for me to, to get a handle on this, on this situation, you know, as opposed to, Oh my God, what am I doing here? They made such a huge mistake, you know, to get me out of here. Yeah, there's there's two things I want to just point out just from a sports perspective because that's where I've really um, studied and, and done a lot of my sort of research and a lot of my knowledge base lives. Uh, when we talk about awareness, there's certainly intrinsic and extrinsic as you're talking about. There's also Nidifer, uh created this um, sort of way of looking at there's also broad and narrow. Um, so if we're external in our focus or our awareness, we could be external, very narrow, like a sniper, yeah, um, yeah. or very broad, like a point guard in basketball has to be able to see people moving mm -hmm. and make plays. And the same thing internally, like we can be very narrow, uh, and in, in meditation, right? You can, you can have a very narrow focus and have one thing that you're focused on internally, uh, a mantra, mm -hmm. um, or it can be broad and let the mind wander a little bit. So I love the different levels of awareness that we can have. And if you're focused on awareness, then you can understand that different types of awareness are useful for different types of tasks. Um, and then the second part that I was just really interested uh, in thinking about is, is intention. And, and intention is such a big word, uh, for for athletes and what i've found with elite performers and not everybody is a performer um but elite performers are self-critical in preparation but then self-encouraging when they're performing mm -hmm. and one of the things i've been trying to wrap my head around is that word judgment um because when does assessment turn into judgment and where's that line um, w that does create insecurity. And I, I, one of the issues I have with just the positivity movement is that, no, you have to take time and preparation to critique, to evaluate, like you said. Um, but there is a line there that becomes, that leads to insecurity, um, I think, for a lot of people. And just like on the flip side, when we're performing, you know, that's when we like well, I'll use Stephen Curry because you you went to Davidson. I mean, mm -hmm. there is no reason that Stephen Curry, when he comes across half court, should believe that he's in range to make a three point shot. Yeah. Um, and certainly, yeah. there's there's no logic that says that a kid who didn't get offered a Division One scholarship from the university that his dad went to and was a superstar at Virginia Tech said to him, hey, you can walk on. And really the only place that wanted him was that small private school mm -hmm. that's known for academics that you went to. Mm -hmm. um, but he had this, you could call it arrogance, you could call it confidence, you could call it cockiness, you could call it narcissism, uh, whatever word you want to attach to it, that when he steps on the floor, he believes he's the greatest player in the planet. Um, and so I have this framework around intention that you intentionally set your mind in preparation to be one way so that you're different when you step on to the stage or the floor or the meeting room so you can perform. And well, and I, I agree with that. And the other thing about intention in the Steph Curry example is Steph Curry has consistently year over year worked his ass off to be as good as he is. I mean, that you don't, 
you know, there's a certain level of natural ability that you're born with, right? But you don't you don't make uh, I, one of my uh, Christmas presents uh, last year from Diane was we had really good seats at a Golden State game at home uh, uh, earlier against the Spurs, uh, uh, Warriors against Spurs. And the best one of the best parts about the game is going early and watching Steph warm up. You know, his, his warm up routine is incredible. And and, you know, I, I've got a video of this. It's him. He's probably about 30 feet out from the right corner or not the right corner, but the right right side of the arc. Swish, swish, swish. I mean, he must have swished like 20 or 30 shots in a row from there. That's just what he does. You know, I mean, and it's not what it's but you don't. You know, he, he's practiced that. And then he, then he ends his warm-up by going almost completely back into the tunnel, behind, kind of behind the corner of the – you've seen it, right? Behind the corner of the court, and he's firing 50 feet away from the tunnel to the net. And he makes it about half the time. You know, but and for for me, what he's doing with that ending is to say, "Yeah, I'm not good. Like, yeah. like now, I'm not. It's no longer about being perfect. It's no longer. I'm just gonna find a way to make this shot, which everyone else thinks is crazy. Yeah, but no, I'm I'm that good. And yeah, um, so so yeah, like I'm a I'm obsessed with intention because I think routine, uh, habit, um, are are usually at are foundational to people that are high achievers or are elite performers. So one of the questions I have for you are, are what are some of your habits? What are some of your intentional routines or uh, things that you do um, to make sure? I love what you said earlier about if you want to be a great leader, you have to first make sure that you're taking care of yourself Mm -hmm. if you want to lead other people. Mm -hmm. Um, So what are you doing to lead the leaders to make sure that you're at yourself, uh, you're yourself, Mm -hmm. you're at your best so that you can help serve others? Sure. Um, The the first one's always got to be yoga. Um, That's first on my list. Um, I've been a yogi, which I would actually call myself that at this point. Uh, uh, And there's, I used to call myself a runner and there's a certain mentality that goes with being a runner. If you self-identify as a runner, uh, my theory is you take a very linear view of life and, and you also don't stop, right? No matter what it is, you know, you're on a 10 mile run, you're killing, you're dying at mile seven. I'm going to quit. No, there's a reason you started. You don't remember what it was, but you started for a reason. So you're going to finish it. Uh, that's the runner's mentality where, Yoga, it's like I think it's more, a little bit more 360 degree point of view. And I do yoga. I got into yoga because I have multiple sclerosis. I was diagnosed in 2009 with that. And um, long, very long story short, after about a year and a half of really struggling a lot physically and, and mentally and cognitively, uh, emotionally with the with the MS, um, a friend of our family who is. Uh, multi-degreed health expert and also a yoga teacher suggested I start doing yoga because she had really good outcomes with Parkinson's patients and MS patients with yoga. And so I started going and the, the teacher said to me the first night, you know, I told her what was going on with me. So well, here's the deal. If you come here three days a week, it'll change your body. And if you come here more than three days a week, it'll change your life. And so I started going more than three days a week. And that was nine years ago. Um, and that's really, really key for me. It's key for me. Key, uh, when you have a chronic illness, you have to manage your stress effectively. Uh, you have to activate your parasympathetic response throughout the day to counteract the natural stress that your fight or flight response generates or reacts to. And um, yoga does that for me. Uh, I, I meditate most mornings uh, for if it's a if it's an average day, it'll be 12 minutes. If it's a a hurried day, it'll be five. If it's a really good day, it'll be 20. And what uh, is what what type of meditation do you like? To I I think the term is vipassana, where you're you know you're focused on one thing, right? And so you mentioned like a mantra earlier. Uh, I don't I mainly focus on my breath. Uh, that's my goal is to focus on my breath. Um, but you know more and more you know I, I, more and more people are into meditation, you know, app like Headspace and the guided meditation and stuff like that. So those are my two big ones. Um, I'm trying to be more and more about we we eat pretty clean in our house. We we're trying to eat even cleaner lately. So that's been interesting. And 
Um, I read a lot still. I think I think I owe it to my clients to be well informed. Uh, not that the coach has to give a bunch of answers, but I think it's really important that a coach demonstrate an understanding of their client's context. You know that you demonstrate that you understand the world they're working in. Um, and I think that's a real, first of all, it's a credibility thing. And second of all, I think it makes you a better coach. And so like if I'm coaching somebody in a company, I should know what's going on with that company. You know, I shouldn't just show up and say, Hey, what do you want to talk about today? I mean, that's fine, but I should have, I should understand that they're getting ready for a big round of layoffs, or I should understand that there's an activist investor who just bought, you know, 10% of their shares and wants a seat on their board because that's going to change things there, right? And that's going to create a whole other level of challenge for that executive that they haven't had. And so I need to know about that stuff and understand what they're what they're dealing with. So I read a lot. Can you pull on that thread a little more and just share what you think uh, makes a good coach? Wow, that's a good one. Um, I'm not sure there's a, well, you know, we're both Georgetown people, so questions. <laughs> yeah, good questions. Um you know, it's funny. I, I do a lot of um, leadership development education workshops and speaking and keynotes and stuff. And one of the things that I will often do in a workshop setting is I'll ask the people, the leaders in the room to pick an item on their calendar, a meeting on their calendar that matters within the next week, a, a real life meeting and get it in their head. And they're in a leadership role in that meeting. And then I pair them up and I say, you're going to ask each other in two rounds of three minutes each. One of you is going to coach, person A is going to coach person B for three minutes. And then I'm going to call time and person B is going to coach person A with three questions. What's the big event on your calendar? And second question, if you're wildly successful in that meeting or event, what happens at the end? What's the outcome? What do people know or think or do or feel or believe or what have they agreed to? If it's a home run success, what happens? Third question, great. So how do you need to show up to make that outcome likely? Not what you're going to say, how you're going to say it. How are you going to be in terms of your energy level, your body language, your tone of voice, all of that. Help them visualize uh, through the coaching conversation and the question how they're going to be. And then to do it again. And so the question on the debrief, how many of you have a better idea of what you're going to do and how you're going to do it? Well, about 90% of the hands usually go up. How did that happen? Well, is this the opportunity to talk about it and think about it out loud? Is it, that's exactly it. And, you know, like peer coaching, I'll tell them, is the most underutilized resource in just about every organization. And everybody here was a great coach because it, it basically, if you can ask those two questions, what are you trying to do and how do you need to show up and shut up and let them answer the questions and talk out loud I'll hold my fingers together a little bit. So you were about that far away from being a professionally certified coach, you know, and it's like, you know, cause it's not that hard and it is, you know, it's harder than that. Right. But you can make so much progress by just asking a couple of broad open-ended questions and giving people the space to talk. Right. And, you know, we always say at Georgetown, it's not about giving them the answer. It's about asking the question ask the freaking question and give them space to answer. That's the beginning, I think, of being a great coach. You know, it's amazing. I go back to uh, the colleague who was leaving for Capital One, and you said, yeah, this is what I'm up to. So first you just showed up. Uh, and I think a lot of people are, are afraid to just show up um, or don't take the action to just show up. And then the second part is, you have to be willing to ask questions to gather information and data to know if you're even going to be useful. And um, they have to know what you're doing. Uh, you have to have an offer or, or some sort of idea of what you're doing. And I've been surprised. My very first client um, came from my aunt who so, knows nothing about sports, mm -hmm. nothing about sports, but her friend was an amateur tennis player. And when she told her what I was up to, her friend was like, I've been looking for somebody like that. <laughs> and, uh, and I'll never forget that because, um, first of all, at least in our field, I think what we do is, is awesome and it's cool. And we get to make an impact on people and help people and help them unlock and make an impact on the world. And it's beautiful. And so, uh, but I think everybody should feel that sense of pride in what they do. Um, in some capacity and it doesn't, it, it can be an engineer. It could be an IT professional. It could be a teacher. Um, but you never know what sharing what you do with someone is going to 
do uh, in the what it's going to lead to in the future. And also, you got to be there. <laughs> you just got to show up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is similar to what you're talking about here, which is you got to show up. You got to be present. Uh, and then you got to ask a few questions and get out of the way. And, yeah, and I think I think the other thing I'd probably add, and and this, you have, and you know, if we go back to the International Coach Federation competencies, you know, that were that were taught, I think you have to help the client create a space for the client to move to action. You know, it's it's not just about the interesting conversation. You know, I think they're hiring us. I think especially in corporate land, they're hiring us to help them get bigger things done or to be better. And, and, and so what's the action look like? And I think the, the, the I guess another thing I've learned is less is more on that. Um, you know, that one digestible action is better than five. Uh, especially if I'm going to talk to you again in two weeks, you know, it's, we got time it's just like pick a, pick something. And I, like, I, I love for them to pick things. I always think of like an XY graph, uh, vertical axis, easy to do, horizontal axis, likely to make a difference. Let's work in the upper right-hand corner of that graph. What could you do that would be relatively easy to do and be, would be likely to make a difference on your opportunity or your challenge? There's a lot of stuff you could do that's hard. So that you're not probably not going to do that. That would make a difference, but you're probably not going to do that because it's hard to do. It would make a difference if you got up every morning at 5 o'clock and took a 10 mile ride on your bike. You're probably not going to do that unless you're a morning person and you love to ride your bike, you know? Uh, so what else could you do that would help you be in better shape and give you more mental bandwidth? And that's a little easier to do, right? Awesome. We're going to start winding down, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about what your mindset is like when you're on stage and you're giving a keynote or you're doing a workshop. Um, how, how do you get yourself ready and prepared for that so that you can perform and if there's anything intentionally that you do i would love to hear about that sure preparation is key i think um and preparation comes in lots of different ways but two that stand out for me is one is to really do your homework ahead of time and understand who's in the room you know and who's who's in the audience and what their concerns are and what's going to resonate with them learn a little bit of their language you know so you can bring it into your talk and demonstrate that you gave enough of the damn to learn about them and you're not just standing up there doing your standard, you know, 45 minute thing or whatever it is. Um, and then preparation with your content, you know, it's, it's reps, you know, it's just like sports. You, the, the more you repeat, repeat it and practice it, the better you're going to get. And part of that is practice by yourself. But the other part of it is the more you do it, hopefully the better you get at it. And I've found that to be the case over the years with me. A big breakthrough for me was eight years ago now. I gave at that point the biggest keynote I'd ever given. It was like a thousand people at the ballroom at the Washington Hilton, which is the same ballroom where presidents talk all the time. The green room, the, the hallway between the green room and the stage at the Hilton as uh, black and white photos of all the presidents who have US presidents who have ever spoken at the Washington Hilton. So that's not too intimidating while you're walking to the stage, walk, oh, you know, like all these presidents spoke here. But and one but, of them was shot there as well. That's right? true. That's exactly <laughs> that's where Reagan was, was shot uh, coming out of there. But um, the, I was working with a speaking coach to get, to get ready for that. And he said, here's what I want you to think about in the green room before they call your name and, and bring you up on stage. I don't want you thinking about I have to go talk to a thousand people. I want you thinking about, I get to go talk to a thousand people and I get to share with them everything I care about and what I've learned and what can help them. That's what a privilege that is. I get to go do that. That's a complete energy shift, right? Between I have to do this. Oh my gosh, I'm so scared about that too. Wow. I'm really jacked and excited. I get to go do this. And it's, you know, you know that from your work, it's just a simple little flip, but it makes a huge difference. Yeah, we call it have tos or gotas. I gotta get a hit. I gotta get a. I got I have to get a hit. Mm-hmm. I'm a baseball player versus all right. I get to go take my take my swing and yeah. get to. I think is also aligned with gratitude, which um, does all kinds of great stuff for us as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I wanted to just pick your mind on a little bit is writing. 
And um, and this may be a good transition for us to uh, give you an opportunity to promote your books mm -hmm. as well. Um, but talk about the writing process, uh, what that was like for you, what that's been like for you. As somebody who's in the thick of it right now, uh, I would love some advice and some thoughts on, you know, how do you keep going? How do you produce great content? Um, share that with our listeners as well. Uh, so there's lots of different kinds of writing, right? I mean, um, you know, you write a 500 word blog post or a 50,000 word book. Um, I, I start at the ball, the blog post end of the spectrum. I think an interesting idea and, and providing a take on it or giving some, some thoughts about how to be better at a particular thing based on your experience or observation. And, um, I, I've found that kind of writing over the years to be a really great way to organize my own thinking. And it's kind of a way to work, work, work ideas out. And like, and if, if you can express it coherently in a, in a blog post length, that just, you know, it, it just, it makes me a better coach. It makes me a better speaker. And it just, you know, one thing feeds the other thing. I get ideas for writing from coaching conversations I have, or leadership development programs I'm running quite often lead to a blog post. You know, some, somebody will bring up something in, in a program that's, oh, you know, that, that would be a good blog post, you know, and I'll think about it some more and write a post on it. On the book end of the spectrum, um, you know, there's the whole thing about write what you know. And I think if you're writing a book is a lot of work and it takes a long time, not, it takes longer. I mean, it could take a long time or not, but it takes longer for sure. Um, and both of my books have been write what you know kind of books. Um, you know, I was in over my head as an executive and was trying to figure out what it means to exhibit executive presence and leadership presence. And, you know, it was a picking up and letting go process. And that led to the next level. And I was, you know, early in my coaching career, I was. I think the clients who were attracted to me had been in were in some situations similar to what I'd been in. And we just connected around that. Right. So that became a book and then overworked and overwhelmed became a book for two reasons. I was seeing a lot of overworked and overwhelmed executives thought I need to go deeper on this and try to provide some, a resource for these people that will be helpful. And then, you know, my own personal experience with EMS and, and just the changes I made in my life and seeing the impact it, it had, and then you could start, you know, reading the primary research on, on the physiology. And there's a lot of physiology behind mindfulness that I don't think gets discussed enough. Um, mindfulness quite often is still kind of esoteric and woo-woo, I think, for a lot of people. There's a ton of physiological grounding in why it works. And I think a lot of people appreciate that, hearing that and understanding it from that perspective. And so I try to do that in the second book. And I'm not a scientist, but I just tried to present it and in a digestible way, what the science says about it and, and how, you know, how you can apply it. So I don't know if that helps, but yeah, it's an amazing thing. I, on my timeline on Twitter today, back to back tweets from two different people sharing articles on meditation and what it does to the body. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and one was on in like self magazine mm -hmm. and the other was like time. It was like very different Mainstream, outlets. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, and, and what I love about mindfulness and just to, to put a bow on this is, uh, for me, mindfulness is a, uh, sort of philosophy or a, a, a framework, uh, for how you're going to handle thoughts and how you're going to be in the world mm -hmm. um, and how you're going to present. And meditation to me is the tool oh, yeah, that right. helps you train to be train you to be more mindful. Um, but I always tell people, because I think meditation is what scares people. Um, it's like, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to focus or shut my mind down. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm like, okay, well, let's just observe um, and notice mm -hmm. uh, or be aware, as you say. Um, and let's go from there. And um, so, uh, it's definitely been a journey for me, uh, and I'm, I'm still navigating what works well for me and what doesn't, but, uh, very powerful stuff. Um, I want to give you the last line here to just promote the books, uh, to let everyone know where they can find you online, yeah, sure. Twitter, social media, your website, all that good stuff. So there's, there's one book in particular right now that I would love for people to check out. And that is the new third edition of my book, The Next Level, What Insiders Know About Executive Success. And 
Uh, it's been eight years since the second edition came out, and I'm really excited about this new edition because it's been an opportunity to incorporate everything I've learned in the last eight years of working with executives all over the world um, about how what you need to do to lead and live at your best. And, uh, and I'm summarizing it slightly differently in this new book. It's still about picking up and letting go and personal team and organizational presence as components of leadership presence. But it's also about three leadership imperatives that I think match up with that. It's about managing yourself, uh, leveraging your team and engaging your colleagues. And you can kind of think of those three as like a, like a pyramid, you know, the foundation of which is managing yourself. And if you do that well, then you're more likely to be able to better leverage your team as a leader. And that creates the bandwidth that you need to effectively engage your colleagues to get even bigger things done. And uh, it's not just the leading at work, it's the leading in the rest of your life and living your life in a way that enables you to do all that, you know, in a way that allows you to show up at your best. So that book is uh, out in October 2018. And if you want to learn more about the book, it's the the nextlevel.info is a little dedicated website on the book the next level.info. And if you want to learn more about me and the rest of my work, it's eblingroup.com. Awesome. And you're on Twitter as well. Give us your Twitter. Handle. I'm on Twitter at Scott Eblin on Instagram at Scott Eblin on LinkedIn. And, uh, I think that's the, I think that's the scope. Yeah. Awesome. Scott, I just want to thank you first off for giving your time with my cohort at Georgetown. Uh, obviously, it, it was meaningful or else I wouldn't have reached out. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Secondly, thanks for giving me time uh, in a one-on-one -on -one setting. And then thirdly, uh, thank you for everything you're doing for the field and your willingness to share uh, with me today and my community. Um, and I know that they're going to love listening to this conversation. Uh, when you do I love this conversation. Please share it on social media, on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Brian Levinson uh, on Instagram, intentional underscore performers. And uh, let's uh, try to share this world of coaching, which uh, uh, Scott is helping to push the ball forward on. And uh, thank you for everything you've done for the field and continue to do as well. My thank you, Brian. This has been a really fun conversation. You ask a lot of questions I don't normally get asked. So it was fun to talk about that stuff. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Scott. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I've been a yogi, which I would actually call myself that at this point. Uh, uh, and there's, I used to call myself a runner, and there's a certain mentality that goes with being a runner. If you self-identify as a runner, uh, my theory is you take a very linear view of life and, and you also don't stop, right, no matter what it is. You know, you're on a 10 mile run, you're killing, you're dying at mile seven. I'm going to quit. No, there's a reason you started. You don't remember what it was, but you started for a reason. So you're going to finish it. Uh, that's the runner's mentality where yoga, it's like, I think it's more, a little bit more 360 degree point of view. And I do yoga. I got into yoga because I have multiple sclerosis. I was diagnosed in 2009 with that. And um, long, very long story short, after about a year and a half of really struggling a lot physically and, and mentally and cognitively uh, emotionally with the with the MS um, a friend of our family who is a multi-degreed health expert and also a yoga teacher suggested I start doing yoga because she had really good outcomes with Parkinson's patients and MS patients with yoga and so I started going and the teacher said to me the first night and I told her what was going on with me. So well, here's the deal. If you come here three days a week, it'll change your body. And if you come here more than three days a week, it'll change your life. And so I started going more than three days a week. And that was nine years ago. 